Open your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1, and you may want to put your finger in Luke chapter 9 as well and sort of mark that passage. We'll refer to that uh, in a few moments. Have you ever heard a story begin with the phrase, once upon a time? I'm sure you have. What kind of story comes to mind with that introduction? Probably a fairy tale, right? A story like Cinderella and her glass slipper? Or Rapunzel and her long hair? Some sort of imaginary tale complete with princesses and castles? Once upon a time is a good phrase, but in our language and in our culture, it has the aura of fiction. We think of make-believe when we think of once upon a time. We usually don't begin true, accurate, historical accounts with those words. It would be odd to open up a history book and see that phrase. Or if the 6 o'clock news began that way, you don't usually hear it from witnesses who have sworn to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth in a courtroom. And so it probably won't surprise you to know that the phrase once upon a time is never found in the Bible. And it's not at all the phrase or a phrase that the apostles used when they presented the message about Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ was not and is not a fairy tale. Peter was an eyewitness, which is extremely important because there is great value in the account of an eyewitness. One author who was a former investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune said about eyewitness accounts that they can be compelling and convincing. And he said, when a witness is truthful and fair, the climactic, account, uh, the climactic act of pointing out a defendant in a courtroom can be enough to doom that person to prison or worse. Eyewitness testimony is crucial, is what this man says good thing for us, we have some eyewitness testimony about Jesus Christ. Peter was an eyewitness, and so he knew the reality of Christ. He knew the truth of that message. Therefore, he's been so concerned about us giving maximum effort for our spiritual maturity and fruitfulness, uh, fruitfulness and growth. That's why he was so concerned about giving his own maximum effort to give them reminders even reminders that echoed after his death, because he knew this is truth. It's not make-believe. And so he took the preaching of the truth about Jesus as seriously as we should take our living for Jesus. People, this is real. You will stand face to face with Jesus Christ one day. just like Peter did. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, and here's part of Peter's eyewitness account of that. Verse 16, he wrote, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and this voice which came from heaven 
we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. First of all, in verse 16, notice what the gospel is not. Peter said, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Some of you have a translation that says myths or tales or stories. Those are all good translations of this word. It, it, it really, our English word myth comes from this Greek word. And every time it's used in the New Testament, it's used in this negative sense of a some sort of story or legend that's not grounded in fact. It's not grounded in reality, in history. With all due respect to other world religions, their beliefs that contradict the Bible are not true. Now you'll hear me say this from time to time and I believe it. I firmly believe that people have the right and should have the right to choose what they believe. But that doesn't mean everything people choose to believe is truth. People believe a lot of man-made stories. But the message of the apostles is grounded in history. And so Peter reminds us of that. Their message about Jesus is not some fictional story. It's not some legend that they just fabricated. Peter, James, and John and the other apostles didn't get together in a dark, smoky room one day and close the curtains and say, let's figure out how we can dupe the world. They didn't make this up. And there's really an excellent apologetic argument here about the validity of their message. Think about this. If the apostles had just concocted their message... There would be zero chance that they would all stick to it for the rest of their lives with what it cost them. Those men gained nothing in terms of this world by preaching Jesus. Quite different from false prophets who usually present a message that can do something for them, that can benefit them in this life. But the message of the apostles brought them shame, hunger, imprisonment, torture, death. And not one of them ever backed away from the story. If they just made it all up, if it was just a myth, why did they remain so faithful to it when it cost them everything? In Brother Doug's Sunday school lesson, in Acts 14 this morning, he talked about how Paul and Barnabas faced some tough times in a city. Therefore, they stayed around even longer to preach. And it made me think about this. They knew it was truth. One Christian apologist wrote this. He said, while many people will die for a lie that they think is true, no sane person will die for what they know is a lie. Some terrorists in our world die for a lie, don't they? But they think it's true. Had the apostles made up the story about Jesus and his resurrection, 
they would have known it was a lie. Nobody sacrifices everything in their life for a known lie. And so that's why these men are so faithful. And their faithfulness and their boldness, even in the face of suffering and death, helps us to realize that the gospel is not a fairy tale that they just made up out of thin air. Jesus Christ lived in history. He died physically. He rose again physically. Gospel's not made up. But here in these verses, Peter is probably thinking about a more specific truth than what we might just say the gospel. The truth on his mind in these verses specifically is the return of Christ when he comes again in power and glory. Notice he says there in verse 16, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The words power and coming, they're very closely associated here. There's, there's a connection here. And they do point to the return of Christ, what we call his second coming, as opposed to what we would say his first coming in the incarnation when he was born in Bethlehem, when he became a man there would arise false teachers who did teach against Christ's first coming. Over time, there did develop people who denied that. that they rejected Jesus was even a, a real man. They're wrong. Okay, he was a man. He did come to this earth. But that's probably not the issue that Peter's dealing with here. Here the issue seems to be that some false teachers were claiming Christ's return was made up. And, and there's several reasons why that's the case. I'm going to share them with you. Um, one is the context of the letter, both the immediate context and, and the larger context. But if you look in verse 11, you see that in the immediate context, Peter has already in a way referenced Christ's return when he talked about our reception into the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. So it's not foreign to even his immediate thoughts. He's already told us that fruitfulness will be worth it when Christ returns and you're richly received into his kingdom. Also, if you look at chapter 3, the larger context, much of chapter 3, Peter's dealing with the Lord's return and he even begins the whole chapter with, with scoffers who say in verse 4, where's the promise of his coming? And so the return of Christ fits both the immediate context and the larger context. Also, the word coming itself points to his return. It was the word most commonly used in the, in the New Testament for the return of Christ. And it's a really rich word. It was a word that was used in secular Greek and in, in the political Roman world to describe a royal official's visit to a certain city or district or area. It was a word used specifically when that official was bodily present. Not when he sent an ambassador, not when he sent some other guys on his behalf, but when he came. His very presence was there. Isn't that a great term to use to describe the return of Christ? One day the king of kings is going to visit this district. And he's not going to send an ambassador. 
He's not going to send someone else on his behalf. He's done that before. The author of Hebrews says, long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. But what about these last days? The author said, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. When Jesus comes again, he's not sending a prophet. He's not sending an angel. He will be here. He'll be here in all of his power and all of his glory, better than any Roman emperor could ever ride into a city with his grand entrance. It's going to be awesome. It will be amazing. Peter said, we didn't make that up. We didn't just come up with this. Notice at the end of the verse, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, okay, Brother Matt, how can they be eyewitnesses of something that hasn't happened yet? You said he's talking about the return of Christ. Him setting up his kingdom. He hasn't done that yet. So how were they an eyewitness of this majesty? Well, it was because Peter and a couple of other men were privileged enough to see the preview. Peter saw a sneak peek of the return of Christ on what is known as the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus Christ was transfigured and, and Peter, James, and John saw his full glory manifest to them. If you've got your place in Luke chapter 9, go ahead and, and, and turn there for a moment. We're going to flip back and forth for just a second before we, we will read Luke's account of the Mount of Transfiguration to sort of set the scene in our, in our minds and help us remember that story. But before we do, let me show you just a few hints that Peter has given that lets us know he, he's been thinking about this experience. He knew he was going to bring up the Mount of Transfiguration, and he sort of hinted at that. If you look in Luke chapter 9 and verse 33, you see the word tabernacle or the word tent. If you remember the story, Moses and Elijah had appeared with, with Jesus talking to him. And, you know, Peter didn't know what to say. But like Peter, he still said something anyway. And he said, we should, we should make some tabernacles here. We should make some tents for, for you guys. Would you remember back in 2 Peter what word Peter used to describe his earthly body? From the same word. Tabernacle. Tent. He knows he's bringing up the Mount of Transfiguration momentarily. Also, if you look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, this is amazing to me. We are actually given insight into the conversation between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. You say, boy, I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall there. Well, you can be. We know what they spoke about. Luke says they spoke about his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus Christ about him finishing redemption's work. About what he would accomplish in Jerusalem. About his decease. About his departure. Do you remember the word Peter used in verse 15? About his near death. It was his exodus. Luke used the same word there when he was talking about uh, Jesus' departure on the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't think that's an accident between just Luke and Peter. And the, look, Peter knew he was going to uh, reference this, and, and he does now. And so as he brings up the Mount of Transfiguration to sort of prove that he was an eyewitness to Christ's return, which is already a future event, 
or which is still a future event. Notice why he brings up this account anyway. Look at Luke 9, 27. Jesus said, But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Jesus made a promise that some of the men standing there that day would not die until they saw the kingdom of God coming. Matthew and Mark agree with, with the way Luke leads into this account. Mark says this, that the kingdom of God, uh, they would not die until they saw the kingdom of God come with power. Matthew's account says they wouldn't die until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. But Jesus didn't set up his earthly kingdom yet. And these men are long gone. So how are we to reconcile that prophecy of Jesus with the fact these men are dead and he's still yet to return? The transfiguration account that we're just about to read was a foreshadowing of Christ's return in power and glory when he will set up the kingdom of God on this very earth. That's how you reconcile it. So look at Luke 9. Look at verse 28 through 36 now. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered. And his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Understatement of the century, right? It's good, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. He didn't know what to say, so he just said something. Verse 34, While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. When Peter, James, and John were on that mountain and they saw Jesus Christ transfigured into his full glory and majesty, it was a preview of his majestic return. That's what Jesus meant when he said, some of you here today won't, won't die until you see the Son of Man coming, till you see that power, till you see the kingdom of God. And they saw it. It's hard to imagine what, what truly that was like. Listen, when Jesus Christ returns, it will be quite different from his first coming, which was this humble, unassuming, uh, quaint entrance in Bethlehem. Or he was placed in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. 
when Jesus Christ steps out of heaven again, it will be in all of his power and all of his glory. And he will rule this world as king. Peter saw it. He didn't make it up. He saw it. And so back in second, uh, back in second Peter, verse 17 and 18, and the very end of verse 16, they're actually the only verses in the New Testament where we're given an eyewitness account of that event. You say, no, you just read Luke's account. Yeah, but he wasn't there. Matthew and Mark recorded as well. They weren't there. They had to hear it from Peter, James, and John later on. And so Peter was there. He says, we were eyewitnesses. Notice Peter's report. Verse 17 now. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is so interesting to me because Jesus has been transfigured into his brightness, into his majesty. That happened before the Father's voice boomed from the cloud and down from heaven. Peter referenced in verse 16 that we saw his majesty. And that word majesty speaks of divine majesty. But Peter doesn't really dwell on that here, does he? I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record, you know, what he looked like a little bit more. Peter does mention the majesty, but he doesn't describe it in great detail. He doesn't go into how bright it was. He doesn't talk about how white the clothes were. Instead of giving this big elaborate description of what Jesus' appearance was, Peter said, this is what God said. Peter reported what the Father said. That was important to him. He focuses more on what God the Father said about Jesus than what Jesus looked like. Yes, Jesus' appearance was divinely majestic. But the Father's approval, Peter says, that's what brought honor and glory. He received honor and glory when the voice of God said something about him. What did the Father say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father said this two times during the ministry of Jesus, once at his baptism and once on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter recognized that this statement showered Jesus with honor and glory. It, it proved it. And in this short statement, we see several things Number one is we see the unique relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. This is my beloved Son. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's not just a man. He's not just another prophet. He's not just a good moral teacher. And, and we've already talked about that in this letter. Peter began the entire letter by focusing and emphasizing on the deity of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the virgin-born Son of God. He is the eternal Word who became flesh. We also see in this phrase the intimacy of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son with that word beloved. Often we talk about how much God loves us, and we should. We should never stop talking about that. We should always harp on that. 
Never get tired of hearing about that. But don't forget that the Father loves Jesus. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And then finally, we see the Father's approval of the Son. God said, In whom I am well pleased. Jesus brought good satisfaction, delight, joy to his heavenly Father. The Father's favor and approval rested upon him. So I want you to think about this. As Peter's giving his eyewitness account, he's, he's basically saying, what better testimony could I possibly give about Jesus Christ than to tell you what God the Father says about him? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in the gospel accounts, which we read in Luke, the disciples are encouraged to hear him. Who cares if Moses and Elijah are here on the mountain when you're standing in the presence of my son? Hear him. Pay attention to him. Peter, James, and John heard the father say that. He ends verse 18 or in verse 18, he says, This voice which came from heaven, we heard. So they weren't only eyewitnesses. They were ear witnesses. Is that a word? It is now. They saw the majesty of Jesus Christ with their own eyes. They heard the voice of the Father approving of the Son. And it was such an experience for Peter that he says this, this took place on the holy mountain. The holy mount. There's different ideas about what mountain this was. And for our purposes, I'm not even going to bore you with that. Bore might be a bad term. Peter doesn't even give specific mountain names here. What mountain it happened on was not important. Who was there was. The incarnate Son of God stood enshrined in His majesty. And the voice of God the Father boomed down his approval. And since God was there, it was a hallowed place. I think Peter probably viewed that mountain much like Moses viewed Mount Sinai. God was here. This is a holy place. So what's the point of all this? Peter pulled from his own personal experience to prove that this message is not man-made. Peter didn't make up the gospel. Specifically, they did not make up the return of Christ. Peter and James and John were given a very unique and special experience that foreshadowed it. Peter was privileged to see this, to hear this, and he wants people to know that his experience was not from his own imagination. This was not a hallucination. It was not a dream. The source of his experience was God. Wasn't a cleverly devised fable. He saw Jesus' divine majesty and he heard the voice of the Father. And so that's why Peter took this so seriously. It's not a once upon a time fairy tale. 
It's an eyewitness account we're reading. An eyewitness account of the real historical truth of Jesus Christ and the fact of his return. That motivated Peter to follow and to serve and to spread his message. Does that motivate you? Does the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ not inspire you at all? Does the reality of his return not motivate you to serve him? It's getting closer every day. We're blind if we do not see the events in this world unfolding just as the Bible has foretold. The king will visit this district. Peter saw the preview. The world is not ready for that, but I hope you are. Have you ever surrendered your heart to Christ? You know, even though the Father loves him so, he didn't spare him for you. The Father gave His only begotten Son. That if you would believe in Him, you wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. If Jesus is not your personal Savior, you're not prepared for His return. And if we're not being fruitful the way we should be, and serving and following Him the way we should be, we're not prepared for His return. I'm not talking about salvation, but don't you want that rich reception that He's just outlined in verse 11? My goodness, when the King of, King com when the King of Kings comes, we should want to be well received. I want you to stand, and I'm going to read, as we close this, this sermon, I want to read what Paul said about Christ's second coming. And I want you to listen specifically to the judgment in store for those who reject Jesus. Paul said, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Please heed Paul's warning and get right with Christ while you have the opportunity and live faithfully for him after you've given him your heart. 
And as we become more grounded in that truth, more assured of that truth, that should motivate us to be the people we're to be and the church that we're to be. What we're doing matters because the King is coming. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for allowing Peter, James, and John to have this preview of your coming and for allowing the gospel writers to record it and for allowing Peter to record that. Father, help us to live our lives with the reality of Jesus' coming at the forefront of our minds. Help us to be motivated to serve you because of that, to be the people in the church that you'd have us to be. Father, if there's someone here today who's lost, we pray for their salvation and anyone else who needs to make a decision about serving you. Lord, thank you so much for your love that you've shown us in Christ. It's his name we pray. Amen.